This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The following message is one of Robert's original messages to men on manhood, found here under the series heading, Authentic Manhood. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Well, good morning, men. It's great to be with you today, and I thought uh, here in session seven we'd begin by uh, me offering you three words of encouragement to kind of start your day. The first uh, is probably by far and away uh, for me the most exciting word of encouragement, and that's just uh, a word to you guys of congratulations for how you're winning, many of you, with your wives and your girlfriends as we've moved through uh, this men's fraternity series this fall. You know, not a day goes by, it doesn't seem, that I don't get an email from some wife or girlfriend telling me how much her husband or boyfriend is winning with her, or I bump into a female at the mall or at a restaurant or at a ball game who pulls me aside and says, my husband is doing so good. In fact, I brought just one email just to give you a little sample of the kind of stuff that just comes, comes to me each day. This lady writes, my husband has changed so much in recent weeks, it's unbelievable. Sudden major changes in our relationship have happened. This course you guys are doing must really work. The first week my husband began noticing me and complimenting me. Wow. Then the second week he called me a sweet name that, really, that literally blew me off my rocker. Wow. Now all kinds of great things are verbally taking place with our children. Wow. I am so excited. Great job, guys. Those are the kind of things from kind of the front, if you will, that makes getting up early in the morning worth it. Because when you begin to connect in a way that really makes a difference with the woman that you love, you get things like that. And you step up into a whole new level of authentic manhood. The second thing I'd like to do to encourage you as we start today is just to mention again this uh, 10 Key Moves draft that uh, you've been working on since the first session that I gave you. Uh, I want to just remind you of the importance of that because um, I realize as we move deeper and deeper into our journey together, uh, you're going to begin to feel, if you haven't already felt, that the stuff we're taking in is just simply too much to process on a week-to-week basis. And, and the truth of the matter is, it is. It's just simply too much. It's a good too much, but it's too much. And that's why at the very beginning I knew that it would be important to give you that 10 key moves draft for future action. It's a draft that after each session you should take the time to sit down and just think about when all of this men's fraternity experience is over. What are some of the things that I need to be writing down now to reconsider after we finish convening? that can begin to move me in the future from the minor leagues of manhood to the big leagues and keep helping me improve my game in relationship to my wife or girlfriend, my home, my children, and in the workplace. That's going to be very, very important that you take that seriously. So you need to be writing down things like this, kind of at the top of the page. I'll just give you some examples. It needs to be things like after men's fraternity is over, I need to plan a special getaway with my wife, or I need to meet with a counselor and begin focusing on an area of conflict that we just simply can't seem to get past. 
There's nothing wrong with that. If you feel like you're at some kind of dead end over an issue, it's not the time to go passive. That's the wrong move. That's minor league manhood. Big league manhood is say, hey, we need to face this. And I'm going to be the one who initiates making a change in our relationship by taking that step. You might write down after men's fraternity is over, I'm going to start tracking our finances and begin to do a budget. Or I'm going to write out a will or get serious about reducing debt. Or I'm going to read a book that's going to further help me understand these personality differences that we talked about a few sessions ago that are so important. I need to understand everybody's not like me. And I need to approach other people, especially those closest to me, in a way that they can receive the things that I want to give them. But for me to do that, I have to know my customer. And my customer is a person I'm spending the rest of my life with. So I better know how she understands life and what language to speak to her and what things motivate her and what her needs are. Those are things you can write down and say, I'm going to learn more about personality. I'm going to learn more about the differences in men's and women's needs. Those are the kind of things that if you take that seriously, the effect of what we're doing here week to week will go far beyond this place. And it'll create a legacy that you'll be proud of as a man. And then finally, since we are in week seven, let me encourage you to be a first semester finisher. We've only got three more sessions to go. And uh, though we've been going a number of weeks now, it's going to require some additional focus and toughness and determination to finish. But I want you to be a finisher. In fact, I have a story for you about focus and determination. A number of years ago in a small town, there was a flood. <clears throat> and because there was a flood, a local reporter took a cameraman and went out to cover the flood for the local television station. And he was out in a little flat boat and as he went around, they came upon a house that had been submerged in the waters. Only the rooftop was sitting out uh, above the water line. There was a little old lady sitting out on the roof, and they were concerned about her, so they pulled up, tied their boat up, and got up on the roof, made sure she was okay, which she was. But they thought, this is a good place to kind of get some film footage on the flood. So they began to film around the area, and they noticed the carcass of an animal go by. And so he began, the reporter began to write down, you know, loss of livestock, uh, they saw portions of a barn float by, so they talked about, you know, uh, loss of material possessions and things like that. Homes had been destroyed. And then in the midst of these swirling floodwaters, a hat began to float by. And uh, the cameraman noticed it, picked up on it because the potential of a loss of life. But as the hat got down at the end of the house, the hat stopped and went back up against the floodwaters and then stopped then went back down, then stopped, and against this raging current, went back up again. These guys were just mesmerized by it. So the reporter turned to the little old lady on the roof and said, can you believe what we're seeing? And the lady turned to him and said, oh, yeah, I know what that is. That's old Uncle Buford. He said, come hell or high water, he was going to mow the grass today. <laughs> So guys, that's the kind of focus and determination I'm asking for you for three more weeks as we finish out this first semester together in winning at work and at home. Now today what we want to do is talk about 
the good life. You notice that on your outlines, don't you? We're going to talk about the good life and where to find it. And of course, that begs a question for every guy here. And here's the question. Can the good life be defined? That's the question. And the answer is yes. It's not a secret. Uh, for years, uh, there have been studies and research, surveys, even the, the tenets of religion. All of those combined in one package, believe it or not, all say the good life can be defined. Not too long ago, uh, John Stossel, some of you know John Stossel because he's a, he's a reporter for ABC News. John Stossel did a one-hour special on ABC called What Makes People Happy? What is it that makes them really feel good long-term in their life? Makes them feel a sense of deep satisfaction and fulfillment. And the information that Stossel reported was not some light opinion poll that he took. It was based on well-documented social studies. And here's what he found. First, he found what the social experts agree upon is not the good life. Here's what it isn't. It isn't wealth and possessions. That's the first thing. The research confirmed what I mentioned uh, last week, and that is once basic needs are met, everybody look at me for a second, once basic needs are met, happiness begins to decouple with money and possessions. They don't, they don't parallel, they don't, they're not partners for life. Money and possessions are important. But what Stossel found, what the research reported is, once you get over those basic living conditions, happiness and possessions begin to go their separate ways. He actually used a fun illustration, lottery winners, that we consider the luckiest people in America, right? People spend millions on wanting to win that lottery ticket. What Stossel did is he went and interviewed lottery winners a year or two years after they had won the lottery. And lo and behold, here's what he found. Every one of them in the interview reported that after winning the lottery, it had lowered the quality of their life. It had broken up their relationships. It had injected into their lifestyles unhappiness rather than happiness. The good life isn't wealth and possessions. The good life isn't beauty, he found. Beautiful people feel good about themselves. But oftentimes, those feelings about themselves, their good looks, <clears throat> create a superficial kind of focus in life. They become toxically self-interested and self-centered because of how they look. And that is the ingredient that actually keeps them from bonding closely with people or having good relationships or deep happiness. It isn't thrilling experiences that are so popular today, like skydiving and cliff climbing and bungee jumping. Those things do give a momentary high to life, and there are a lot of people who are really committed to it. But what Stossel found is the people who obsess about things like that, they do so for a reason. And the reason he found is, is that they do so because it's to compensate for an otherwise bored or unhappy or purposeless life. That's the best they can get out of it. Finally, it isn't personal achievement. Personal achievement in the long run doesn't bring long-term happiness or well-being. In fact, Stossel featured an old clip from Troy Aikman after he had won the Super Bowl. 
It's a statement that many high achievers, and you may be one of those in the room here today, make after they work so hard for so long to achieve what they think that when they finally get it, this giant gush of satisfaction is going to pour into their life. There he is after winning the Super Bowl, and this was the clip. He's standing there with kind of this odd look on his face, and he says these words. Is this it? It's not personal achievement. So there we have it, what the research tells you. So what is the good life? Can it be defined? If the things I've just mentioned are only the candy shell around the good life, there's nothing wrong with any of the things I just mentioned. But what the research is trying to tell us, it's just the candy shell. It's not the interior. So what is the interior of the good life? Research found four things that bring to people's lives a deep sense of fulfillment, meaning, and long-term happiness. Here's what they are. First, close friends. Secondly, a good marriage. Third, control over your life. The more control people have on their lives, the happier they are. That's why in democracies, people are much happier, happier than people in dictatorships because there's a control factor that democracies offer the populace that other countries don't. And then finally, a vibrant religious faith. Those are the four key ingredients, according to the research, that define what the good life is. Now, you know, reading that, seeing that, one of the first things I thought was, you know, that's interesting it says it that way because that's what the Bible says as well. You've got in your notes just a little scripture verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. It's a chapter that the Apostle Paul wrote, and at the end of the chapter, he says, there, he says the good life is built around, as a matter of fact, three things. Three things that give star quality to life. And here's how he says it at the end. He says, now remain these three. You can almost quote it, can't you? Faith, hope, and love. Now, I just want you to look at the diagram for a minute. In close friends and a good marriage, what do we have? What we have is love. That's what it is. In control over your life, what do we have? We have hope. You know, when you lose control, you lose hope. I mean, look at any athlete during a game. The minute he senses that no matter how hard he performs, it will not make a difference in the outcome, what does he do? You see his shoulders slump. You can tell he's lost hope because he's lost control. It's the same thing you see when you go to a funeral and rather than people hanging their head feeling we've lost everything, you have some people smiling and singing and rejoicing. Why are they doing that at a funeral? Because they have a God who is bigger than death. And that's where their hope is. So even though they've lost their loved one, they haven't lost hope in their loved one. They feel like because of their relationship with God, they still have control over these things, even death. When you feel like you have control, you have hope, don't you? And then, of course, the last one's kind of self-evident, by religious faith, that's faith. So the Bible and research and surveys all those things all say the same thing, that the good life is faith, hope, and love. 
And wise is the man, especially you young men, who, who go, is that really it? And rather than chase a lot of dead ends and shortcuts that are going nowhere, you'll, you'll take a look at this information and you'll say, you know, if that's really true, that's how I'm going to steer my life. And guys, let me tell you, in the early days, you may say, you know, that's going to take some self-control. But long term, you know what it's going to bring you? It's going to bring you the good life. That's where the good life is. Over the last six weeks, we've been addressing a number of very specific issues, haven't we? Issues that hopefully have energized love between you and the woman around you, and hopefully encouraged hope or control, gives you a greater sense of control in the relationship. I think that's what some guys have found. All of a sudden, you know what your wife's number one need is. You know how to speak her love language. You know her specific personality. What do, what do those things give you? They give you, don't they give you a greater sense of control of your circumstances? And when you have greater control of your circumstances, you know how to resolve conflict, your finances, doesn't that give you a greater sense of hope and well-being? Sure it does. So we've been looking at the elements of love and hope a lot. What I want to do in our session here today is I want to talk about the faith part of it for just a moment. Because spiritual faith or the lack of it will impact your relationship with a woman. Some guys don't get that. But there's a spiritual side of life that cannot be ignored. What we believe, what you believe, whether you express it or not, about life, about God, about eternity, about your beliefs, how strongly you believe them, how much you agree on those with the woman that you love, all of those things are going to highly impact the quality of your relationship. And if you don't have any closeness there, it'll impact it negatively because those items will be buried under the surface of your heart, but they're still going to be having an impact in the real-time, day-to-day, real-life relationship that you have with a woman. The person who has a close spiritual relationship, the man that has that kind of relationship with the woman that he loves, here's what he's going to discover long-term. He's going to discover some of the greatest intimacy of his life. And he's also going to create the greatest bond, the firmest bond. That's why the Scripture says the good life is a threesome. <laughs> it says the good life is a threesome. You know, I do a lot of weddings, and at weddings I read Ecclesiastes chapter 4, oftentimes at the very beginning of a wedding. King Solomon's words, the wise king of Israel. Here's what he says. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. So two are better than one. Furthermore, if two lie down, together they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And then it ends this way. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Now, if you were just a casual reader of the Scripture, is there something odd in that passage to you? <laughs> Jumps out immediately, doesn't it? He's been discussing the two-in-one concept. And then he concludes it with a mysterious phrase. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. 
And you'd be sitting there going, did they make a mistake there? Who's the third strand? Now, in the nation of Israel, it was obvious. And I hope it's obvious to you as well. Because the best, healthiest, most firmly bonded relationships on planet earth between a man and a woman is a threesome. It's a man, it's a woman, and it's God bound together for life. God is that third strand because he's the strand that transcends inconsistent human love that oftentimes is going to fail you or fail the woman that you love. He's the strand that keeps those other two strands from unraveling. He's the strongest strand that upholds and supports and encourages and deepens and sweetens and unifies when you don't have the energy, power, or wisdom to do so yourself. That's the third strand. I call it the triangle effect. Some of you have seen the triangle effect from time to time in the past. But God is the apex of the triangle. Then you've got the man and woman as the base points of the triangle. So there they are in this threesome of love. And what happens is, as the man on his own begins to move closer in his relationship with God, and the woman, as she on her own, freely moves closer in her relationship with God, what naturally happens? They naturally, don't they, move closer together. The more you move up towards the apex, the distance shortens between you and the woman you love. The relationship sits closer to one another. That's what spiritual life is all about, and that's how spiritual life works. On the other hand, if you leave God out of the triangle effect, it no longer becomes a triangle. It becomes a flat line, doesn't it? And here you are on one end, and here your wife is, or the woman that you love, on the other end, and in between you is a line that I like to call a rope. It's a tug-of-war rope. And what you do is that you're on one end, she's on the other end, and you're trying to pull her over to your values, your beliefs, your way of doing things. And she's on the other side trying to do the same thing. That's how the relationship works because God has been left out of it. So you're trying to pull each other towards one another. But look at the flat line because there's a great truth here. You can go five years, 10 years, 30 years in your relationship. But in this tug of war, guys, look at me. You never get closer. You get hot and you get tired, but you don't get closer. And here's why. And I've been with guys in counseling, talking to them, and they're trying to convince me that their way is right, their beliefs are right, and why can't their wife understand it? And I just remind them of something I've observed over 30 plus years of pastoral ministry, and that's this. You will never, ever dominate another person. You'll never get them to submit to your kingdom. Even if they give up at times, inside they're still standing up against you. And you know it. And there's not a deep sense of satisfaction in the tug-of-war relationship. It's never going to work. There's got to be some kingdom bigger than you both. 
And you got to decide whose that is to make the relationship work. I believe it's the faith side of the good life. That's how you win at home. So let's talk just for a moment. If we're at that point, what about our faith? Okay, let's move away from the relationship between a man and a woman. And let's just talk about us guys. I mean, that's who's here this morning. What about our faith? Yours and mine. What do you and I believe about God and life and eternity? We're friends. We've been together for a couple of months now. We're beginning to know each other. Let me tell you about my faith for just a second. 36 years ago, I was presented in my freshman year of college with the faith that's called the Christian faith. While I was in college, I was beginning to discover the first part of the paradox principle. Can you remember the first arm of the paradox principle, the question that it asked? Do you get it? And see, up until college, I got to tell you, I really thought that I did. Life had gone pretty, pretty well for me. I felt good about things, felt good about me. I thought I got it. I thought I had figured it out. I thought if I just continued to do the things that I was doing, life would kind of lay itself out for me. And then as I got into college, a number of things started happening to change my perspective. Back home, my mom and dad's marriage started breaking up. My dad, at that point, was struggling deeply with alcoholism. I was away from all my friends that I'd grown up with in a small town. I'd never been away from home, and suddenly I was in college, disconnected from all those tight social relationships. And I was in college to boot, and that first semester, I got totally out of control. Not only that, but I was in the midst of the turbulent 60s where everything was changing and whirling around you. And in the midst of all of that mixture, for me personally, all of a sudden I had this kind of dawning revelation. I didn't get it. For the first time, I felt this unbelievable vacuum in my life that life wasn't just going to continue to move the way it always is. I just realized I don't get it. Life's bigger than me. What do you do? And that's where I found myself. By the way, that's a moment every man will ultimately find themselves in. Whether they're 20, 40, 60, or 80. One of these days, maybe you're not there yet. But one of these days, you're going to realize, I don't get it. So in the midst of that new awareness about life and how inadequate I was for life, someone had the courage to share with me what I call Jesus' good life. In fact, here's the way Jesus said it, John 10.10. 10. He said, I have come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. Now, you can call it what you will. and I'm not going to take you through my whole story here today. But something in me, for whatever reason, sensed that that was true. Maybe it's because I was as desperate as I was. But in some blind faith, on a particular spring evening in 1968, I chose to believe that. And I chose to embrace Jesus Christ, and I began to obey His Word. That was 36 years ago. A lot of waters passed under my bridge. 
in 36 years. I'm a long time follower of Jesus Christ. And I have a much more seasoned and experienced understanding of what the spiritual life is all about since I took that leap of blind faith in 1968. So what have I learned in 36 years? I can sum it up in four ways. I've learned, first of all, God really does love me. And he's not passive about it. I've learned that Jesus really is alive because I have experienced him personally and I'm, I've seen him from time to time dramatically answer prayer in my life. I've learned that his word works, that it prospers those who actually embrace it, radically believe it. I've learned that and that it makes simple people like me wise. I mean, in 1968, if I thought I'd be standing in front of a thousand guys sharing how to live, let me tell you, guys, you don't think that I was really smart enough to think this stuff up, do you? <laughs> and yet the things that I've learned works. You know why? Because his word works. And I've also learned that his promise that he made to me in John 10, 10, I've come that you might have a better life, a higher quality of life. He wasn't talking about going to church. He was talking about real-time life, love relationship with a wife, how you handle money, how you conduct yourself personally with friends and things like that, that I could have that better. And here's what I've learned after 36 years. He's come through over and over again on that promise, the better life. Now, in a room like this, there are a number of you who share a similar story because you've had a faith partnership with Christ as well. There's also, at this point in our journey, a number of you who aren't at that place for one reason or another. You don't share that experience or understanding. Maybe it's because no one has ever just taken the time to explain it to you. Maybe you've never felt the need. Uh, maybe there's been some experience or moment in your past that's kind of blocked any interest in thinking about that. Uh, maybe if you're honest as a man, maybe you've been a church goer, but for you, all church has ever been is boring. It's never connected. There are a lot of guys like that. Or maybe, maybe you've just assumed your whole life for one reason or another, with all these claims being made, that you just can't really know. That may be you today. And yet, here I am, guy you've been on a journey with, telling you, that you can know, that that is possible. So before we finish the last three sessions of our journey where we turn to parenting and how to be a good dad and what it means to raise a healthy son or daughter and have a warm, rich home life, which is our last three sessions, I thought we'd take just the last few minutes of this session and you would give me the privilege of explaining to you what I believe is the real key to winning not just at home, but at work. It's called the faith side of the good life. And no statement says it more succinctly or more powerfully or more clearly than what the Apostle Peter says in his little letter in 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to look at the verse there on the screen. It's also in your notes because I want you to take it with you. Here's what he says. Just summing up this Christian life. He says, according to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. I think that's a great little portrait, a little picture of the faith side of the good life. And I've highlighted in that passage four phrases in italics because I want to concentrate just for a moment on those four phrases I think summarize so well this life-giving faith. Here's the first. Life-giving faith starts, if you look at the verse, with, look at the verse on your outlines, with God's great mercy. And I want to picture that for you for a moment. A number of years ago, it's been a lot of years now, when my kids were younger, we took a tour of Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida. We were down there with a lot of other tourists. It was kind of a typical South Florida day, you know, where the sun and the wind comes at you like a blowtorch. And you're at this theme park with thousands of other people, and you stand in these lines that I call human blenders. You know, where you, just, you walk, and then you turn, and you walk, and you turn, and you walk, like that till you're dizzy. That's the kind of day we were having. It took 45 minutes, I remember, waiting in line to see Terminator. It took 50 minutes to see Jaws, and about the time Jaws was actually going to come out of the water, it broke down. <laughs> You've had that moment, hadn't you? 55 minutes for the Back to the Future ride. And then after all that, as the day was ending and I was absolutely exhausted, my kids wanted to go see E.T. And I remember going to see E.T. We walked up. That was kind of the favorite ride at the time. And the sign said, 65 minutes from this point. And man, I'd lost all hope. And I slumped my shoulders and I turned to my wife and I said, can't we just skip this one? And she said, but the kids love E.T. And I said, but it's so hot and we're so tired. Let's, I'll go buy you something. Let's leave. <laughs> Typical great male leadership at that moment. <laughs> but let me tell you, you know, you can see what I, I feel. And I felt miserable and I looked miserable. And in that moment, just as I said that to her, this voice behind me says, would you like to make that one minute? And I turn, and there's this middle-aged guy, nondescript, has on some khaki pants and a white shirt. And he looks at me and he says, if you believe me, you'll follow me. And he turned and walked off. Now, this is a split-second moment. I, I promise you, I'm not making this up. It's a split second. I got all my kids, you know, and I'm thinking, should I follow this guy? Is he a nut? What should I do? But he's, he's melting into the crowd. So I said, come on, kids, let's go. So I grabbed him, we start following him, and we go to the side of this E.T. theme uh, location, and there's this little kind of nondescript door that he opens and walks in. My family walks in with him, and there at the door is an attendant, and when this guy walks by, the attendant greets him, says, hello, Mr. So-and-so. How you doing? He walks on. We walk, and now we're in the bowels of E.T., and he's walking by all these people, and they're all saluting him. We go past the ticket counter where there are hundreds of people lined up, hot and sweaty like me. We walk right past them. They hand him some tickets. He grabs them, goes up, goes up to the front of the line. There's a little cart that takes you through. He opens the door, ushers us in, and then says, have a good day. And off we go. I started weeping uncontrollably. 
Never have I ever experienced such great mercy. <laughs> Guys, I want to tell you, even to this day, we talk about it as a family. Not the great ride. E.T. wasn't that great a ride. But you know what we do talk about? The great mercy that was extended to us that day. Men, here's what I want you to know. God is a lot like that man. He's a lot like that man. No one ever comes to God first. You're not smart enough. And neither am I. You know why we don't come to God? Because we're stuck out there in that first arm of the paradox principle. We think we get it. And we're going about our lives trying to get it. We think we know best. We think we know what we should be doing and why we're doing it and how we're going to make such and such and such and such happen if, if the world will just listen to us. We think we get it. And so God sits there and waits until you and I have stood in line and tried to ride every ride theme park earth has to offer us don't we? And he waits until those long lines wear us out. He waits until the rides that we thought were going to give us such life break down on us or don't deliver what they promised they, they would deliver. He waits us out until we finally admit at some point in our life that we don't get it. And just about the time we say that, and there's despair in our life. A voice behind us of mercy speaks. It could be through an event. It could be through a circumstance. It could be the voice of God coming through a friend, a total stranger, or somebody like me on a rainy morning standing in front of you at Men's Fraternity. But it's the voice of mercy saying, you know what? There's a better way to live than how you're living. There really is. Undeserved for sure, but there's a better way. And if you want it, you can have it because of one reason, one reason only. God is a merciful God. And He really does love you. And He cares for you. And He wants the best for you. And until you get that, you can never start the good life that has the element of faith in it. That's why Peter says what he says. Secondly, I want you to know, if you look at the verse on your outline, life-giving faith is offered through what it says, a living hope. As you guys know, faith is only as good as the object you place your faith in. And I want you to know the faith that I'm offering you today is not one sourced in philosophy it's not one sourced in an idea. It's not one sourced in kind of some wise, pithy sayings that will improve your life or some code of conduct that'll, that if you work hard enough will jack you up a little bit. I'm not offering any of that. What I'm offering you is a person who said he was the way and the truth and the life. Or if I can paraphrase it, who said he was the total package and then went out and proved it, unlike any other philosopher, 
by rising from the dead so that you and I could have today not just some good words, but a living hope. Do you get it? A living hope. And when we connect with this living hope, suddenly we find there really is help out there for us and guidance and support and comfort and counsel and forgiveness for us. And I want you to know there are no greater moments in life than when a human being connects experientially and personally with the living hope, the living God. I remember back in 1968, my first experience with God, I didn't know how to even describe it, but it was just simply the burden that was lifted off my shoulders of guilt and sin and shame and a sense of lostness that I'd been feeling. I couldn't tell you why I was feeling all that. It was just in that moment of life-giving faith, I finally, finally, for the first time, felt like there was a direction for my life and a hope and an assurance from within that, I, that was mysterious to me, but it was real. You could not take that away from me. And then over the course of my life, there have been moments, some small, some incredibly powerful, where I believe I've connected with the living God. I remember when I was in graduate school and uh, my wife and I had been there just a short time and we found ourselves in a desperate situation, completely out of money, right before school was going to start. We had counted on her getting a teaching job in Oregon. But I remember the day she came home and told me that she had turned in her application and the lady there had given it right back to her and said, right now we've got a backlog of teacher applications. We can't even consider yours for at least a year. And I drove back to our little empty apartment and she told me that. She cried and I was sitting there going, well, what do we do? And the only thing I knew what to do, 3,000 miles away from home in Oregon, was to get down on our knees and just say, God, help us. That's all I knew to do. It was the right thing to do. That afternoon, the apartment owner, owner's wife came by to just check on some things at the apartment. I'd never met her. I introduced myself to her. We struck up a little conversation. She asked me what I was doing. I said I was in graduate school. And for some reason, she said, well, how are you making it since you're from Louisiana? And I said, well, funny you ask. We're not doing too good, you know. had not got a job. We're out of money and those kind of things. And she said, really? She said, well, well what is your wife wanting to do? I said, well, she's wanting to teach school, but we just found out today it's going to be at least a year. And she said, well, that's interesting. She said, you know, I'm the volunteer for one of the heads of the Portland School District. Uh, what's, her, what's her area of teaching? I said, well, it's, <clears throat> it's in special education. And she just stepped back for a moment. She said, special education? The person I, I'm, I'm volunteering and working with, my good friend, is head of special education in Oregon. I said, really? She said, would she like to meet him? <laughs> I said, absolutely. And she went and got my wife, and they drove over to meet him. When they got there, when they were walking into his office, a teacher was walking out who had just resigned in special education. She went in, talked to him. He hired her right there on the spot. My wife started the next day. And she came back. And I suddenly realized I'd connected with a merciful, all-powerful God. And let me tell you, when you make a connection like that, whether it's small or subjective in your heart or big like that where it's got stuff you can touch and feel, 
life is never the same. It's never the same. Because you know you're not alone. You have a living hope. And then third, notice in our text, it says that life-giving faith promises a secure future. Peter says we have an inheritance that cannot be taken away from us. In fact, he says it's reserved in heaven for us. What is that, that inheritance? Well, if you go to the rest of Scripture, I think it's very clear. All it's talking about there over and over again is just the hope of another life called eternal life. In fact, here's the way Jesus says it in John eleven twenty five. He says, to some despairing people, two women who were despairing over death, he says to them, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even if they die. Wow. That's where my faith is. So here's the question this morning as we conclude. What about your faith? Is it real? Does it make a difference? But more importantly, guys, look at me. Has it connected with the living hope in a way that you're sure of that and clear on that? Or do you feel cloudy or confused when it comes to the issue of faith? Or maybe you've been in a church all your life, as so many have, but it's never really connected because there's never been that extra step where you really platformed off and said, I'm really going to believe this and go for it. There's one last thing in the text that you need to know about life-giving faith. And that's this. Life-giving faith comes alive, this is the most important, only when you die and are born again. You see that in your text. Peter says you must be born again to a living hope. Here's what I want you guys to know, because you hear the term born again. What does that mean? Well, I want you to know that to be born again, if we go back to the paradox principle, remember the first one, I don't get it. Remember the, <clears throat> the last part of the paradox principle? The last part of the paradox principle is that you've got to die to live. Here's what I want you to know. You cannot be born again until you die first. And the death has got to be to you. Die to believing that you know what's best in life, that you know how to figure life out, to believing that you're on your own, to believing that even if there was a God, I'm not good enough, which is a lie. Die to thinking, I've got to make it work. I've got to figure it out. Until you die to all of that, until you actually suffer that death in you, you can't be born again. You've got to die to you first. And then, then you can really have room inside here, this spiritual vacuum, this cavity inside. Will you have room after you've died to yourself? Only then will you have room to really put Christ there, to really believe in Him. You've got to give up on you before you go after Jesus Christ. It's an all or nothing deal, guys. And see, when you try to play the middle... It just stays on the off position. Everybody see that? But when you place your faith in Christ in that kind of abandoned way, a miracle occurs. You're born again in that instance to a new life and you're joined for the first time 
to a living hope. I want to illustrate that. I'm going to ask Rick if he'd come up just for a moment, and I'm going to conclude with this. But I want you to see this kind of in a picture form. And Rick, I'm going to ask, uh, I've asked Rick if he would just do one thing for me, and that's play the role of God here today. So I'm going to have Rick do what God has always done, and that is welcome humanity. So Rick, if you could just hold out your hands. That's God welcoming humanity. But here's mankind, and here's me as a man. I'm this way. I'm positioned this way in life. And I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to make this happen, and I'm going to make this person believe in me, and I'm going to get this job raised, and I'm going to accomplish this in life, and I'm going to get this woman doing exactly what I need her to do. I'm going to raise kids that are going to work out, and I go about my stuff. And this begins to fail me, and I begin to feel empty here, and this doesn't work, and my wife's mad at me, and my kids are in trouble, or... I've got habits I can't overcome. I don't know what your agenda is feeling like right now, but somewhere in life, it gets so heavy, and I begin to lose hope, and then I figure out, I don't get it. And then a moment comes. However it occurs, sometimes so normal and average, sometimes maybe spectacular, but I hear God, and I turn back, and I have this moment. I, I, I discover He really is for me. And then I've got a decision to make. Because I can't get there still wanting to do my stuff. And so it becomes the moment of decision. Some people sit in church all their life right here and just look at it. But for those who understand the faith side of the good life, they finally understand, I've got to make a movement here. I can't figure it all out. And the movement is for me to come to God like this and see if he's going to accept me and then embrace it. And in that embrace, I'm embraced back. But when this occurs, Scripture says, you're born again. Life will never be the same. Rick, thank you for doing that. So before we move on to the rest of the journey here today, guys, here's what I want to ask you, man to man. This is a gut check. Do you have that faith? And if you don't, would you like to have it? Because you can start right now. I'm going to give you the opportunity a man gave me back in 1968. He just said, Robert, if you're empty and you want him, he's there for you. All you have to do is ask him to come in. So would you bow your heads just for a moment? And I want to conclude today by just offering up a prayer. And if this prayer expresses the desire of your heart, guys, you're feeling, I need that. I've come in here and all of a sudden I realize all this stuff we've been talking about, these ideas and stuff, those are good. They're helpful to upgrading my life. But I've got to have a core. And the core is either going to be me or Jesus Christ. And in this moment, I'm going to bet on Jesus. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if you just want to ask him in faith to be a part of your life. Here's how you do it. And you can just silently repeat this prayer to God as I help you with it. Lord Jesus, today I've heard a different way of life. But after all these weeks here in men's fraternity, it makes sense to me. I can't prove it. It's still a big faith step for me. But I know my way is not going to give me the life 
that I really need. I want the more abundant life. And so by faith, I'm asking you, the living hope, the living God, to come into me and to prove yourself to me. I'm asking you to come in and help me unburden my life. I've heard you're the Savior of the world. I know you can forgive sin. I'm asking you to forgive all of my errors, all of my mistakes, all of the moments where I just chose to do the wrong thing. But as the living hope, I'm also asking you to partner with me for life. I don't know how you're going to show up, but I'm going to count on you to be there for me from this point on. And I'm going to begin to look at your word and obey it, knowing that it helps me get into a relationship with you quicker and faster. But in this moment, in my heart, I open it to you, Jesus Christ. Come into me. Live in me. Be the God of my life. Amen. Now guys, here's what I want you to know. If you did that here today for the very first time, I want to welcome you to the kingdom of God. I do. I want to welcome you. In fact, I'd like us to give a round of applause for those guys who in their heart made that decision today. You're in for a great adventure. Now, two things before we go. One, if you made that decision today, tell somebody close to you. It might be your wife. It might be your girlfriend. It could be me. It could be a person in your small group. But tell somebody you made that decision. It's good for you to confess that with your mouth to somebody. And then secondly, find a group of people who really want to follow Jesus. <laughs> and they're around. And they're normal people. They haven't, they haven't turned into some strange thing. Join a group of people who really, want to follow, who really want to follow Christ and be like Him and experience that life and join them. It'll be the smartest, most strategic move you'll ever make. Now, guys, in the next three weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about how to be a good dad and how to manage a home in a way that will give you hope and excitement and how to leave a legacy that you'll be proud of. That's next week. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.